Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with TJ Ferrante. TJ is a partner and healthcare lawyer in Foley's Tampa office with a practice focused on telemedicine and digital health, as well as a wide range of transactional and related regulatory issues for healthcare industry clients. In this discussion, I get TJ to reflect on growing up in Odessa, Florida, attending Holy Cross for undergrad, earning his MBA at the University of Tampa, and attending Boston University School of Law, where he earned his JD and LLM. And that's right. You heard that correctly. TJ has his MBA, JD, and LLM, and he goes through and explains why it was he decided to get all of those degrees. Additionally, TJ talks about his experience adjusting to law school. He reflects on what it was like finding a job during the Great Recession. He also provides some great advice to junior associates on ramping up in general as a young lawyer, and he also speaks to the topic of imposter syndrome. I also get TJ to talk about his digital health or telehealth practice, and it was really interesting to have him on the show because we are over 60 episodes into this podcast, and TJ is the first member of the telehealth practice that I've had on the show. And I get him to just boast a little bit about how preeminent Foley's telehealth practice group is viewed nationally and just in that space. So TJ does a great job at explaining what he does day to day to navigate and to help clients answer really hard questions and really reflects on the exciting intersection of healthcare and technology that makes up a lot of his practice. At the end of the discussion, TJ also provides some wonderful advice on the importance of intellectual curiosity and passion for one's legal career. I hope you enjoy my conversation with TJ. TJ, welcome to The Path and the Practice. We're going to start your episode like all the others, and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. Great. Happy to be here and looking forward to it. Awesome. So what's your intro? How do you introduce yourself when you're you know, talking to clients or on, say, on some sort of professional panel? Sure. Uh, my name is TJ Ferrante. I am a, a healthcare attorney, a partner at the law firm Foley and Lardner. And uh, my practice focus is on in the digital health uh, industry. Uh, what that means is I work with a lot of healthcare industry clients, both very large and sophisticated academic medical centers, hospitals, the traditional pri- provider types that you typically think of, like doctor's offices. But I also work with uh, quite a few um, smaller, yet still very innovative and disruptive early stage and startup type of companies that are primarily healthcare technology-enabled focused and are looking to, to use technology and blend it into our healthcare de- delivery system to make it better for patients around the world. So we're going to talk more about that. Eventually, we'll talk about your practice and you can dive in. But before we do, I want to unpack how it is, why it is that you can introduce yourself like that today. So let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? 
Yeah. So born and raised in, in Tampa, Florida, but my parents are actually from uh, the New England, from the Boston area. And so my Florida friends that I grew up with always say that I talk too fast and I have a little bit of a, a New England accent. So that's a little bit about my background. I, I do talk too fast, but maybe it makes for good podcasting or radio to cover a lot of topics today. Well, then you're in good company. I I don't know if I do it a lot on the podcast, but I'm also a fast talker. And when I was still practicing, there were times where the um, woman, you know, transcribing the deposition or whatever, she would glare at me and be like, you're at almost 200 words a minute, Alexis, you need to slow down. <laughs> but tell me what it was like growing up in Tampa. So let's say I found you in middle school. What was TJ into? What was life like? Yeah, you know, Tampa was great. It, it was more of a sleepy town when I was growing up. And, and, you know, it's it's grown a lot since then. I mean, just yesterday, I think there was a Forbes article that said it was number one in that Forbes list for a technology city. It actually was ranked higher, uh, surprisingly, than like San Francisco and, and New York and other other cities. Now, you know, that's one one uh, article's uh, ranking and, and maybe clickbait to some degree, but there is definitely a, a bigger pop that's happened uh, recently. When I was growing up, it was a little bit more of a, a smaller town feel. I actually grew up in just outside of Tampa. It was actually a little town called Odessa. Right next to me was was a horse farm. So to give you kind of an idea of, of the rural area, that, that was my background at the time. But, you know, Tampa was a great place to grow up. I have a lot of uh, friends and deep roots here. And through high school, the grass was still always green on the other side. I did end up leaving Tampa to go up through my education in in New England. But it was a great place to, to grow up. And I'm going to drill down further because here's my my hypothesis is that particularly for law students listening, they may find lawyers who they're like, oh, TJ or whomever I've had on the show reminds me of myself. So what kind of kid were you? Like, what what were you into? Sports, books, TV shows, what sort of things? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, so I grew up with two brothers and, and the three of us played sports. We actually all played uh, ice hockey, which was very unusual for a kid growing up in Tampa, Florida. But again, my parents were from from New England. So we, we did find the, the, the rinkety hockey rink not far from us that we would go to. And uh, unlike the folks that I have friends that grew up in, in other parts of the country in the North, we didn't have to compete for ice time at like five in the morning. So we got to go at normal times. And I also like how you called it ice, ice hockey, because if you say hockey, I just assume it's on ice. But there are needs to there is a reason to clarify. So you and David Sanders are in good company. And so for listeners, David Sanders is the office managing partner in DC, also played hockey growing up. My husband still plays adult men's league hockey because he grew up in Michigan. And my eight-year-old just started a team. He's now an ice bear, which I find adorable. But my husband does have to get like rink time at 11 o'clock at night. So you didn't have to deal with that as a kid. No, there wasn't that demand. And it's funny, I do say ice hockey uh, by habit because growing up, you know, rollerblades and roller hockey was more prevalent. And so, (laughs) you know, I say hockey and people down here would assume roller hockey. So there was a difference. That's really funny. So take me into high school. And in particular, I don't know if you were still playing hockey or other sports or if there's sort of like extracurriculars worth highlighting. But so tell me about that. But then let's transition into that decision to go to college. You know, where did you go and what was that decision process like? Sure. So I, I went to a school in Tampa called Tampa Jesuit High School. So it's a Catholic-based, Jesuit-based high school, which was it was a great fit for me. It was an all-boys high school. I did play sports there. I played football. I did wrestling at the time in high school, and I enjoyed those extracurriculars quite a bit. 
And that was where I developed a lot of friendships that I still have today. It was a very fraternal community and uh, also influenced my decision somewhat for college because I ended up going to a school called Holy Cross, which is also a Jesuit-based school. So I've always had kind of that, I guess, that Jesuit upbringing. I I was raised Catholic, but I wouldn't consider myself the most religious person in the world. But it it, it definitely formed my educational background and, and was, I think, a good experience for myself. That's really interesting. And I don't know that I have much to contribute here, but I want to share this anyway. So Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History. And in one of the seasons, and I can't remember the topic he was actually tackling, but he talks a lot about Jesuit education and the approach to learning. And it was something that I actually was not familiar with. And I mean, I've heard of, I've heard of Jesuit schools, but I didn't realize the unique approach to learning. So I just find that really interesting that it sounds like you're able to thrive in that environment in high school, you know, as well as college. Um, shout out, I guess, also to Malcolm Gladwell for listeners who want to check that out. I'd recommend it because he's touched a lot on the law, by the way, for anyone who hasn't heard. He talks a lot about there's a whole series on like the LSAT and mm-hmm. whether or not it makes sense. But so tell me about college. What did you major in? What did you think you wanted to do when you when you grew up, essentially? Yeah, so I guess the, so. That's the age-old age old question, I guess, of like, so how did you decide to be a lawyer, right? Because it, it, yes, it'll inform, we're slowly walking yeah, up to it. It'll inform my answer here because I was a uh, I was a philosophy major in a Spanish. I think I was a double major in philosophy and Spanish. And so, you know, my parents were rolling over like, what the heck are you doing? Because it's not, you know, the Me most- Me too. Also a fellow philosophy major here. Right. Yeah. Way. I mean, we, we, you know, we basically sit on the steps of Athens and, and, and ponder the, the you know, the meaning of life. So, you know, I, I picked that because at the time I had already decided internally that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I had read somewhere and it had convinced me that, hey, philosophy major is like a good prep way of thinking for law school. And I was like, let's do that because I know I want to be a lawyer. And I knew I wanted to be a lawyer pretty early, actually. I, I kind of just picked it. And, and it was as early as I think like elementary or middle school. And where it came from, other than I think even earlier than that, I wanted to be like an astronaut or something, which one day I decided not to be, was I, I grew up, my background was also in a family business. So my the year I uh, my mom was pregnant with me was the year my dad out of the garage decided to start a company. So kind of, you know, I, I've always had that entrepreneurial influence on, on myself, on, on me growing up. And it was a bumpy road, especially in the early days. I remember as a really little kid. And I remember, you know, there was, uh, I think at one point, my, uh, my dad had found out one of his business partners were stealing money from the company. At one point, I think the IRS was like threatening fines to like shut down the business. And so lawyers were uh, a little bit part of my life growing up to some degree and seeing those more stressful times with my, our family's business and, and seeing the lawyers help and advise on that. And even when it became more stabilized and they were doing acquisitions, I got to see kind of some of the lawyers. And they always, it always fascinated fascinated me. I thought it was you know cool. I thought I liked them. They you know people respected them in those transactions and in those dealings and, and looked to them for advice. So I said, hey, that sounds like a, an idea. So let me let me let me do that. And that was kind of the day I decided, and uh, I've been on that path ever since. We're very similar. And by the way, so listeners who, who've listened to the show more than once, like you're basically on Alexis's journey through Foley and Larder, <laughs> getting to know all the lawyers here. So I can't help but when people say certain things, be like, yeah, me too. Um, I also was someone who knew very early on I wanted to be an attorney. But for, I don't know, because I didn't have as good of a reason as you, by the way. So I really like what you just said about essentially identifying lawyers as they helped people. 
And yeah, there's some level of, you know, they're respected and able to figure things out. But it sounds like the genesis is like they were able to help this family business. And that's pretty wonderful. Also, going back to what you said about being a philosophy major, the joke I've heard a few times is like, you know, what are you going to do with that? I don't hear, I hear the philosophy factories aren't really hiring these days. <laughs> so, so I guess your parents just trusted he's going to go on to law school. Yeah, that was part of it. So, so part of the deal was, uh, you know, yes, uh, you can do philosophy, but you, the compromise was, I, uh, especially towards the end of the my college tenure, where where I was rising up to be like a senior and it was more formalized, they said uh, part of what was decided was I was going to take a year after college and go work for the company, our family's company, for a year. We were actually going through a sale of the company, one of the companies, and so it was going to be a good learning experience for me to, to help. And, and in that role, I served as, as a payroll manager. And I can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But when I was going to do that, I also decided to go uh, go to business school. So I got my MBA in finance too at nights, and that was part of the the deal where you know uh, I did learn a little bit more practical skills. I, I do I do uh, you know harken back to the the philosophy. I think it was very helpful, certainly to to in my way of thinking. But I have to say the MBA MBA experience was much better. I do think there is like something to say about learning. And, and I can talk about, especially in my what I do in my practice, how to read a balance sheet, understanding numbers and not being scared Absolutely. of it. So, you know, if I could go back and do it again, would I still be a philosophy major? I think I'd have a component to that. Um, but I think I probably would have explored some of those accounting classes and other things that I kind of steered away from. All right. We do have to talk even more about that because I actually think that's something that a lot of attorneys are afraid of and don't necessarily realize how much, depending on what sort of law you practice, it really can be helpful to be able, like you said, read a balance sheet. Although I want to unpack things just a little bit more. Where did the the Spanish major come from? The Spanish major came from, yeah, I, I guess I skipped over this. So I actually uh, spent a year abroad. I lived in, in in a place, in an island off the coast of Barcelona called Palma de Mallorca. And that was part of the Spanish major. I figured if I could major in Spanish, it would make it for a good excuse to, to go abroad for quite some time. So that was that was the strategy there. And, and that was a great experience. I mean, I was uh, it, it was an interesting to be put in a position where you are not a native speaker and trying to like... Even something to communicate like you're hungry. Uh, you know, I was in a location where, and I, and I lived with an individual there. Um, it was a, an elderly lady. She didn't speak any English. And so wow. if I needed to like do anything, I had to, I, I got very good at charades. And it also in, improved my Spanish speaking ability from what I had learned through elementary school up and through college. Uh, I learned more there in like a month. Uh, you know, trying to survive <laughs> than anything else. And, and it also had me, uh, you know, it gave me a real um, good appreciation for non-English speaking, uh, non-native English speaking people in this country. Because sometimes I think, you know, people gloss over that to some degree and and, and have an in, internal, maybe a bias or way of thinking that if someone doesn't speak the way you do that, uh, it means they're, they're less intelligent. And I certainly felt that when I was over there, trying to have a philosophical debate with anybody on the street there or friends I had and knowing that I sound like an idiot because I don't have the vocabulary, it can be very frustrating. And so understanding that that someone's uh, what they're thinking in their mental acuity may not always be able to be uh, as communicated if they're not a native uh, speaker of your language. Oh, absolutely. And as you can imagine, my diversity director heart you know, swells hearing you explain that. And also just understand when someone knows more than one language, it often means they're just a smart person right. because they know more than one language. Whereas uh, and, and I have the same inclinations, you know, that American in me, that sometimes the initial reaction, the initial bias is, oh, 
I have to slog through this person not understanding what I'm saying when really that 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 shouldn't be the viewpoint. But okay, so Spanish and philosophy undergrad, you take this year off, um, but it's not it's a year not truly a year off between school because you went to get your MBA at night while working for your family's business. And so, and all that happened within the year after graduation. Is that the timeline? Yeah, most of it. So, so I, I, I worked that year and I took classes at night for the MBA, the MBA program. I, I tried to, as best as I could cram it in, it couldn't in one year. So I went to law school at Boston university. And after law school, the first year that summer, I was very lucky, I, I, and we can go back in more detail, but I got a 1L summer associate position uh, in the middle of the financial crisis. I, I, I tell me, I don't know how it happened. I, I had a horseshoe around my neck or something. And I did. I finished up my MBA at night during the summer associate program. It was only, I think, a couple more classes. Um, okay. and, that's, and that's how I got it done. I used to get that question all the time in interviews because the numbers, the dates kind of overlap. And so people would always ask me, but that's how I got it finished. <laughs> right. Cause it looks like you were in business school while in law school. And then, so I'm following uh, your journey on LinkedIn and I see you went to the university of Tampa for your MBA. And then as you just said, Boston university for law school, it sounds daunting. You're making it sound like it was really no big deal. It does sound, it does sound daunting, but just to confirm based on what you said, you knew you wanted to be a lawyer, but you also knew you wanted to take this time to work at your family's business. So I assume during that time period, in addition to working, getting your MBA, you're applying to law school. Yes. And the law school application process, I didn't think it was terrible, but yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot. It seemed like a lot when you say it that way, but at the time, and this is a lot of my advice I give to junior lawyers is, you know, when you're in your twenties, you just have energy. Like you just have more energy and time, and time, and you have time. right? So, um, you know, I didn't have, I mean, I was working for the family business, so I did have a full-time job, but you know, I wasn't gonna get fired, right? I knew that. But, and so I was able to, here's the difference. The, the thing is in, in, Trust me, I did my fair share of partying in school. But look, some of the times I just didn't go to the happy hour on Friday nights. I did. I decided to study instead. So were there some sacrifices? Yeah, but my brain cells today probably are more grateful for mm-hmm. it as is my liver. So you know that you know I think those were some of the trade offs. Um, but at the time, you know, I didn't feel like it was overwhelming. And, and today, I I think it was it was good to keep busy and kept me out of trouble. Yeah. How did you decide on Boston University? So Boston University, you know, I, I applied to a number of schools. And I was uh, a little bit, uh, I drank the Kool-Aid on the law school rankings, right? So that influenced my decision. In all reality, I do think big law firms look at that, of course. And so that was, and I thought I wanted to go into big law at the time. So I looked at the rankings. It was a really good ranked school. It wasn't the best ranked school I got into, but they also I had for a scholarship and it was in Boston and I had gone to school outside of Boston at Holy Cross. I had a lot of friends there. I had family there. I also thought at the time, I thought I was going to be a, an M&A lawyer and Boston was a good city uh, with law firm presence there that did that work. And so those kind of all aligned for what I thought I was going to be headed. And that's why I chose BU. Great hockey team. Great hockey team as well. Better than Michigan's team uh, in case David Sanders listens to this one. You know. I'll make sure he listens now. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so start, for listeners who don't know, David Sanders mentioned before, office managing partner of DC, huge Michigan fan. Uh, calling him Mr. Michigan is probably an understatement. <laughs> so um, he's he's really poking the bear there. We'll see what happens, TJ. No, I'm just kidding. But you mentioned something about about rankings, and I don't think there's a lot to say about this, but we are getting more law students listening or people even considering law school. And you know where your law, where your school 
falls within, you know, the however many hundreds of law schools, it can matter. And I encounter a number of students who actually don't know that. And something that I'm focused on as director of diversity and inclusion is just making it more well known that not everybody actually goes in with the knowledge mm-hmm. of how the system works. And so it sounds like you actually did have a little bit of that knowledge, which which is great, but it's just interesting to explore. But okay, so tell me, you start law school. Is that an adjustment? Is it smooth sailing? What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it definitely was an adjustment in the sense that, so first of all, law school is an also unique. When you when you go to college, right, undergraduate, most of uh, your peers are around the same level of you in the sense of like experience. Like most people are around 18 years old. Most people have never had like a full-time, you know, full-time employment job. In law school, the, it's much different. You have a much more diverse set of folks, which is great from a learning experience, but also can serve to impact as the adjustment. So you people that have worked, this is their second career. You have people like me who took some time off. So I did some uh, experience into a full-time workforce. And then you have people fresh out of school that were at a fraternity party just a month ago. And so they're, you know, but at the same time, most people are brilliant, right? So I think that the biggest adjustment was really realizing how smart a lot of these people are. And in, in trying to catch up with that, I, I was definitely by no means, I did very well in my grades, but by no means the smartest person, like naturally in the room. I think my strategy at the time was like, look, I got to we'll, we'll take a step back here. You know, there is a system in law school, in, in the lawyer profession. And I think it's a little unfortunate, but it's a reality. And the system is this. If you want to do a big law firm path, if you work backwards from that, the most likely chance you have of getting in the door is you have to go to a really good school. You have to have a certain GPA to get into that good school and you have to have a good LSAT score. Once you're in that school, you have to graduate in a certain, with a certain GPA and a certain position in your class to get the interview, which gives you the shot, right? So it's very formulaic. There's a system and a strategy to it for, you know, whether you agree with that or not, those are kind of the rules of the game. And if you want to play the game, you should understand that. Um, I don't agree with the rules, but I was aware of them at the time. And so I knew that if I, uh, if my goal at the time was to try to work for a larger law firm, I knew I, I figured out what they cared about. And that was where your class standing is in the kind of law school. So I so I decided that I was going to have to try to outwork, you know, some of my colleagues and, and try to make up for the learning curve of not being the brightest star in, in the sky at the time. And that worked for me, you know, and I did well in it, and probably a little bit of luck too, because it's a very subjective grading system. And ultimately, I, I did end up at my first gig was uh, considered a big law firm and, and um, you know, got me in the door. Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about that. And I also have to reflect on what you just said, because you may know this, but I'll just repeat it. The point of this podcast is many. Now it started off really to have a venue for Foley attorneys to learn about Foley attorneys. But as the show has grown, you know, it's also allowing law students and young lawyers to learn about lawyers who on paper are really impressive. And TJ, you are one of those lawyers. Someone pulls up your bio and it says that you have your MBA, you have your JD and you have your LLM. So I think it's really powerful for people to hear why it was that that was your path, how it was you were able to do all those things. And then just maybe it makes it feel a little more possible for others to do the same. 
Yeah, and just to comment what you said, all that says is that I was really good at school, right? And I have an extra, a couple extra frames in the wall. Uh, it doesn't, you know, once you get later in your career, it matters less and less. At least from, uh, at least from a prestige perspective, right? It is, it fills some space in the wall that I don't have to put like some, some pictures on, and then it also, um, you know, it fills up my bio. You know, the LM in tax was, I did realize early that, um, you know, I did want to be a, a business lawyer, right, from the family business, and at the same time, you know, I knew the importance of understanding how businesses work to, to be a lawyer was going to be important. So, and that, and that came from the family business background that, that I, I came from. And so, you know, I started just in the courses I was, classes I was taking, trying to remember, you know, when I was working for the company and also just growing up and just thinking about it, like what did companies care about and what's important and where they ask about. And most of the companies, at least in the small businesses, right, are not asking about the backgrounds of a Supreme Court justice or what is like a, um, uh, you know, you know, is there jurisdiction in a multi-state like lawsuit and what are the federal rules of civil procedure? Those kind of things, you know, while I had to learn them for class, some of the mandatory classes fell a little bit on, on deaf ears for me because I was like, well, I don't I don't know how practical this is going to be for me. Um, and so what I did go to towards were even as just in the regular law school classes, some some federal tax classes, corporate tax classes, I was like, I should probably at least know a little bit of what this was about. I do agree. It was like, oh my God, this is terribly boring stuff to some degree. Sometimes it would get more exciting depending on the topics. And I took enough of those as uh, just in my three years of law school that one day, I think I was talking to a counselor or somebody at the law school administration. They're like, you know, you basically almost have an LLM here already. You need a couple more classes. My grades were good enough that they let me go for free. And in my, in my uh, immature juvenile mind at the time, I was like, I can go to school for like an extra year for free and postpone, you know, the real world to a little bit longer, live in Boston. And, and so I was like, that sounds like a great thing. And so that's what I decided to do. And in, in actually looking back on my, my personal career, my practice, I think the best foundation from an education perspective that I got in a post, you know, high school perspective has been the MBA classes and those LLM like classes. I still like almost on a daily basis, harken back to some of those concepts of, because I get asked questions, TJ, what entity do I need to set up? Like a basic choice of entity selection, like all your friends are going to ask you that uh, as a lawyer, even the most senior of lawyers today get asked that almost very frequently. So that that course helped me. There was a course on, on taxes of, you know, if you're going to get equity as a co-founder, as a an employee, you know, what, what does that mean? Do I get taxed? How do I get vesting in that stock? Those are concepts that affect a lot of people, both in very large companies, but also very small companies. And so because of that, the business world is impacted by those concepts more so than some of those other esoteric ones I mentioned. And a lot of lawyers don't, you know, spend the time on that or as much as they should. So that's why I thought it was very helpful to have that foundation. Yeah. And you'll often have to pick it up later. So you said, you said so many things. One about, you're like, I'm almost getting the LLM anyway. It's one more year of school, not having to pay for it, which is a big wow. But also earlier, you mentioned the timing of when you were in school and the connection with the Great Recession. And so I can't help but think that also likely informs some of your decisions, but also being so practical. Like I kind of want to want to 
give you a round of applause for knowing. I, I didn't know. And it wasn't a year. I, I misspoke. It was only one more semester. So I gra- I graduated in the, so it wasn't like I was taking a year off. It was like I graduated in the spring and then I should have started as my son. I already had a summer associate intern or a first year gig. And instead of starting with the rest of the class in September, I just started in January. So it wasn't in my mind, something that I was like losing a lot of time. And I got that additional piece of paper to hang on the wall. Yeah. So you pick that up. And the other thing, and I don't, I don't know that I want to dive into this too much, but it's something that I think can get really lost on law students is the business of law, the business of law firms. If you're trying to go to a very large law firms, who are the clients? Generally, it's really large companies. It's fortune 500, it's fortune 1000. What sort of problems do they have regardless of your practice area? Many of the practice areas that I can think of the top of off of top of my head at Foley are in some way, actually almost in every way, involved with the business. So to be somewhat competent in reading numbers, and the other thing is a lot of lawyers became lawyers because you were like, well, I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be an engineer. And sometimes there's this underlying level of like, I'm just not that good at math. <laughs> so you may want to run away from different sorts of financials. But I mean, you know, as a former just general commercial litigator, that would definitely come up. And there were times where I felt you know, a bit insecure because I couldn't necessarily read the document despite taking that, you know, one semester of, you know, business law for lawyers. So I just, I really like that you've highlighted that and the importance of getting some practical, if, if possible, some more practical skills while in law school. All right. So take me through, and at this point we're, we're over a decade into your career. So we're not going to necessarily go play by play year by year, but you did spend the first four years or so of your career at a different firm before joining Foley. I would love if you would just reflect on, you know, life as a junior associate and ramping up and, and what, what you learned to the extent there's something to highlight there. So to unpack it, I, you know, I, I was a healthcare lawyer and specifically now a healthcare technology lawyer. And, and that was all an accident, right? Half of my life has been like an accident kind of coming through here, although there's some directional planning here, but. And by the way, is that, and that's the summer opportunity you had, I assume was with that firm? Yes. It was a firm called Carlton Fields. They're a very large uh, presence in Tampa. That was their headquarters. They're a Southeast regional firm. And since, since I've, I've left too, they've expanded. They have offices throughout the country here. Great firm, only good things to say about them. And they give Give, like a kid with no experience like myself a shot as a 1L. I mean, I all that talk I just gave about like how grades and all that stuff were important. This was before my grades even came out. And I and I had to, I just basically sent uh, a letter, I think my resume and a letter to every law firm in Tampa. I knew I had to be in Tampa to finish my MBA. So I was like, I can't really have that flexibility to stay in Boston. I was like, fingers crossed, this recession's terrible. Uh, but let me just see. I'll work for free if I have to. And somehow uh, my resume uh, got looked at and I got, I got the gig there. It, it was probably a factor though, still of like the school I was at in, in the fact that I was in getting my MBA, I, I would imagine helped on that decision, but probably also a little bit of luck. I'm sorry. And TJ, we can't stress enough how the recession really was terrible. I just, there's people listening who maybe don't fully appreciate the impact that 2008, 2009 and the years after had on the legal industry because we're, you know, we're in another very challenging time now, but so far the legal industry is actually doing pretty well despite the pandemic environment. So I just want to just stress for, for folks who maybe don't know 
it really was a big deal, I think, for you to get the opportunities you got. And just you said it, I just had to say it one more time. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, that class, so that was when the, so my first year uh, summer associate gig was when the recession was like happening. It was like actually unfolding. And so that class, I remember I was in a summer associate class of 24 summer associates, right? That's a big number. The next year when I was a two, all I came back, there was six of us. And it just showed the shrinking just just roles and positions and jobs that were available. Most of my colleagues at BU, which is a great school, most did not have jobs when they graduated, which was unheard of prior to the recession. And you know, it was almost like the kiss of death if you came out looked wanted to get into big law and didn't get the gig right away. And so there was a lot of, I think, anxiety and and, and frustration. Well, it was almost like a lost generation of lawyers, like that 2011 mm-hmm. JD year. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, but but go on. I just want people to really yeah, understand. Yeah, it was. Uh, that's why I consider myself so fortunate because there were, you know, I had a lot of smart friends too that had the good grades, and 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 so there was, you know, part of it. So, um, yeah. So so the healthcare, getting the healthcare was an accident. I and here's the other thing, right? To make it worse, uh, I wanted to be like a M&A lawyer in the middle of the recession, which there was no M&A. I was lucky with the one L thing, so I told them that, and they're like, okay, well, we'll see. You got another summer, and in my second summer, I kept. You know, I said, look, I still want to do that. That's the work I, I, I've been working towards. And um, when I was a th- in my third year of law school, I got a call from the recruiter saying, hey, TJ, um, we just actually acquired this really successful um, group from another law firm. They, they came from Buchanan Ingersoll, and it was a healthcare practice group. And they were going to start brand new at, full, uh, at Carlton Fields. And they said, hey, they need a, a junior uh, associate, and they do a lot of like healthcare deal work. And I was like, yeah, I want to do deal work. I don't know anything about healthcare. Never really thought about getting into healthcare industry, but sure, I'll sign me up. And that's kind of how I, I got put on that path. Did a lot of work as a junior associate in public hospital M&A work. And it was very much, it was different than what I see the uh, associates of Foley were versus of my first firm. And it was much more trial by fire. So I was thrown into kind of stuff that maybe a little greener than than other firms and, and associates would have, but it was good for me. It can be very stressful, but it was also a, a really great place to cut my teeth. But I, you know, another thing for junior lawyers is I, I just want to say is look, there's I think I don't think I was a very good lawyer to start necessarily. I mean I I remember I was in charge of like board meeting minutes, right? And what that means is these important people at, at a hospital would sit around a table and make decisions about the hospital. And I was there just uh, writing notes down and and record that for the record, right? So I would do the meeting minutes and I would uh, send it to the partner and she would come back and it was just like a flurry of red pen, just like typos and like grammatical errors and just things aren't good. I'm like, oh man, I am the ter- like worst lawyer in the world. And I remember I'd be like, okay, well next time this is going to be, I would proofread it. I was like, okay, this is the perfect minutes. I'm going to give this to the lawyer. Nope. Came back, read everywhere. So if you're a junior attorney and like, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a lot of uh, criticism. It, it's natural. It's part of the experience. It also um, now as a as a partner, I can really appreciate that the training process of attention to detail. What I really look for in junior lawyers are ones that are eager to learn that attention to detail. I don't think it necessarily has to be inherent. It can certainly be trained. It was trained. I I learned it, and and that's very important to um, uh, I think your legal practice because. We're very detail-oriented in what we need to do, so um, it's important. Well, once again, you said lots of lots of important things. I can't help but pull out the nuggets of wisdom. One is practice area decisions can very much sometimes be influenced by things outside of your control. So for you both, 
Um, it was tough to be a deal lawyer during the recession. In case people didn't know, you need you need money and credit and people lending money to buy things. A lot of that was not happening. So there's just a lot of deal work dried up. But then also the opportunity presented by you were joining a firm with a new group. You know, they need junior associates. Do you want to do this? And you are you are open to that. Um, and then also what you said about what it what it means and what's really valuable in a junior lawyer, because I love how you said I wasn't the greatest lawyer at first. It was very kind to yourself, but also to all the new lawyers where when really you don't know what you're doing, like you have to learn what you're doing and what you said about being open to feedback. So important. And I think, you know, the law students listening will hear this and be like, yeah, 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 I get it. But it's different when you're presented with something that's covered in red. It feels different. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this, this, I mean, the idea of this imposter syndrome, uh, it will fade as you uh, age into your career and get experience. But I mean, that's a real thing. I remember I was like, oh man, one day, when's my key card going to stop working? And they realize I'm a fraud here. Like I don't belong. These people are too smart for me. And I'll, I'll never forget this. I was at my previous firm. There was a, a well-respected bankruptcy lawyer, also a really nice guy. He came in and we were talking and I don't remember how we got on the subject, but somehow at one point in the conversation, he says, you know, I, I, you know, he's been practicing for like 30 years. He's like, I think 25 years of my career, he's like, I would come in the office and be like, I wonder if one day they're going to eventually realize that I don't belong here. Like I'm a fraud. And that it, it is for whatever reason in the lawyer community, there's a sense of this imposter syndrome. If you like Google, there's like articles about it, but uh, I think we talk about it. Like, look, it's okay to feel that way. There are a lot of smart people. Your clients are smart people. Um, and, uh, you know, Advice for junior lawyers is it's okay to not know, and it's even more okay to say that you don't know something. You definitely want to do your own legwork and diligence and do the best you can. But I told a client just the other day, like, uh, I was like, the client's name is like Mike. I'm like, Mike, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, he, I think at one point he was talking about some software open source licensing issue, which is not in my wheelhouse. And he was going on and on. And I said, Mike, I think I heard like R2D2 and like a Niner or something in there. I don't know what you said, but, uh, you know, I do have this great colleague who like wrote the treatise on like open source software. So I'll let you all talk, you know, your coding stuff together. And he was fine with that, right? Like that's what he wants. If I were to try to like stumble or fake my way through it, you know, clients are smart too. They'll they'll smell that out. And instead you need to own, I think what you, you can't be expected to know everything. And so you say what you, you know, and you don't know. And, um, and we do have subject matter experts for that very reason. Well, that comes up in so many different capacities, whether it be for the client or with the judge or with the partner that you're working with, the senior lawyer. Um, people will seize on that. If for some reason you're sort of puffing up and you don't actually know the answer, that's when you'll get 37 questions because that partner is going to rely on your representation as the fourth year or the second year. And they will zone in if it turns out they much prefer you say, you know, TJ, I'm, I don't know, but give me a moment to do a little more research on that. Or if it's to the judge, can we brief that your honor? Um, exactly. Well, what I want to also talk about TJ is your transition to Foley. So, you know, why Foley? How did you choose Foley? And then I want to dig even more into um, some of the ins and outs of your current your current practice. Yeah. So um, I was very happy at my previous firm. Um, you know, I enjoyed the work I was doing. What what I did start getting interest in was uh, uh, this term that kept getting flown around called telehealth. I thought that was cool. Healthcare technology. I thought those were interesting topics. No one at the firm I I was. At really had any interest or any expertise in it at all. And uh, so I started doing some self-study on it. I had like one or two projects that involved it and I really liked it. And so I was like, okay, I can, I can probably just teach myself and, you know, trial by fire. I'll figure it out and, and do that along with the other work I'm doing. And, um, 
Um, I had heard about Foley, and and I was at the time, uh, I think I was co-chair of the Hillsborough County uh, Bar Association's healthcare law section, which was really good because it even just attending that and being the co-chair plugged me into the network of other healthcare lawyers in the area. So I kind of would hear things. And that's where I met uh, uh, my colleague who I work closely with now, Nate Lackman. And he at the time, like right in my backyard of Tampa, was like becoming the like nationally recognized expert in telehealth. And I did not know that uh, until I had a conversation with him. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And so we just kept an open dialogue for a while. And, and eventually, you know, uh, I learned more about Foley through him and, and he had asked me to come over and, and I did. And it was, you know, one of the things that was uh, appealing to me was Foley's national platform. You know, the firm I was at before, the work I did was almost exclusively in the Gulf Coast of Florida, you know, some, some South Florida stuff. Um, but this uh, Foley's platform allowed me to, to have that uh, fish in just a bigger pond and uh, also had a much larger healthcare practice group. I think there's like uh, 50 something lawyers that in their healthcare practice group. And that was very appealing to me. And, and so that was, um, and the compensation was better too. I can't deny that, you know, money was part of it. Um, but yeah, and that's, that's basically what made me make the jump. And, and it was really uh, great for my career. Well, so far on the podcast, I've had Adria Warren and Emily Weber, who are also members of Foley's healthcare practice group. Although I don't know to what extent they touch on telehealth. I don't think they do, but I just wanted to mention that in case there's anyone listening who'd like to hear from some of our other healthcare lawyers. Um, and TJ, you've said it when we started talking, you've touched on it throughout, but now unpack for me just a little bit more what your day-to-day is like, what you're advising clients on. Pretend I'm that law student who's like, you know, what are, what do you do, TJ? How does this work? Yeah. So, you know, I, I do, uh, in the, in the kind of space that I work in, I consider myself, obviously I'm a lawyer, but I think the clients consider me not only a lawyer, but as a, as a business advisor. And I know lawyer, you know, other partners say that all the time, but I do think it's true. And it's worth repeating that you, you're there just to, as an advisor to help solve problems. And that's at the, at the highest level, kind of how you describe it. And then to get more granular, like, well, how you saw, solve problems and where are you, um, in your expertise able to really, uh, add value is, um, for me, a lot of uh, the clients I work with, they use technology in a way to deliver healthcare. And usually it's in a manner that allows um, for a the clinician, like the doctor and the patient to not have to be in the same physical proximity of each other, same space. Well, what that means is that blows away geographic boundaries. So you can, you, patient can be located anywhere, the doctor can be located anywhere. Um, there's a lot of benefits to that. What it means is a lot of these companies now that want to employ that uh, business model is they want to be everywhere. They want to be in all states across the country. Well, in the United States, you know, uh, the rules are very different from state to state. Um, and the, the laws have also an overlay of federal law about that. And so where we really help our clients is having done enough of this work, having done the research in all 50 states, is to help them develop a uniform way to do business across the country, right? So they don't have to worry so much about, oh my God, we have to do something totally different over here in Texas and something totally different in California and Florida and figure out from an operations perspective, that's that's not a great way to, to run a company. And so we've been able to understand the requirements across the country and then figure out you know, here's the model that will work for you. And certainly we can thread the needle and make all these customizations. And if you want to pivot, you can, but we have a way for you to, to do your business and be compliant um, everywhere. And so that's where they we provide, I think, the most value. And then ongoing with that, 
the different rules in a highly regulated industry like healthcare that that goes along with it. Um, because a lot of these uh, clients that I work with may not have a clinical background. They they're a little bit on the uh, the technology tech bro kind of uh, mentality where they want to move fast and break things. And you don't want to break things when uh, those things could be people, right? And humans and healthcare. So there is some, some um, I would say, modulating that to some level too, to make sure that, hey, we have these laws, they have teeth more so than maybe Uber experienced when they when they went to scale. And, and so we help them navigate that and, and let them realize that there are higher stakes here, both from a legal perspective, but also an ethical perspective. So telemedicine and digital health are is a practice area that I've had very little exposure to, maybe maybe none, but as I hear you speak, it does sound really exciting to be, particularly now, in the intersection of technology, healthcare, and adding in the word during a pandemic. Um, what I've gleaned from the practice over the last year and a half that I've been at Foley, most of which operating, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, is the group in general has been <laughs> incredibly busy um, for for a variety of reasons. And it's been it's been interesting to sort of sort of watch from the from the cheap seats, like the really, really, really cheap seats, really, really far away. Um, and I don't know if there's any commentary on what life has been like for you over that the last year and a half in light of so many things that have, have happened, but I'd be interesting to, to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we probably do more telehealth work at Foley than any other law firm in the country and probably the world. So uh, that'll be my my pitch of anyone that's listening that's at another law firm that wants to. Uh, we're always hiring and we're growing. So, you know, there, there's that pitch. But yeah, I mean, during during the pandemic, I mean, a, a silver lining of it was it really benefited the telehealth industry and, and put it into the spotlight. And so it certainly was a tidal wave of, I mean, I, rem- I mean, uh, I'm not afraid uh, of long hours, but oh man, like we were just uh, working around the clock, but not in like a grind way. I mean, we were working to figure out the world. Like we were trying all these rules. There was a time period where I was just throwing up my hands. I'm like, there's no law. There's no law. Everyone's just trying to figure this out and uh, make it so that people can get access to medical care without going into these crowded areas and, and, and spreading this virus. And so it was a really probably the most, one of the most interesting things that could occur in a healthcare lawyer's uh, career to see something like that happen, um, seeing stakeholders like hospital systems, like technology companies, like the government all get on phone calls and literally just be like, okay, these are the rules that are, have been traditionally in place. We're going to need to be, be flexible here. And how can we do that to get businesses comfortable that they're all not going to get sued or go to jail or have the government take back money and, and work together to provide uh, a problem solving environment and to get through this from like a, a just like a, a human uh, element to it and that and that was very exciting and and so it made those longer hours uh, uh, obviously much easier to to swallow and and I don't I don't regret it but yeah I think it, it moved forward the industry quite a bit and um, and it's an ex- exciting time for it. Well, and things just had to get done. They had to figure it out. And I'm going to say something that might sound totally crazy, particularly to a law student or someone early in their career. But when your view of your practice is that you're in service of your clients, that you're solving problems, the hours itself, the hours you're billing are ancillary. You need to capture it. You know, we are a for-profit organization. We need to be able to build that. But, you, you know, the hours were what the hours needed to be at that time, given what was happening with your clients and the industry. And it's just, you know, it, it's flipping it on its head because I think sometimes people think of hours first. It's like, if you like what you do, the hours will feel a little bit different. 
Yeah. And it was a weird time for everybody. It was a weird time for me, right? You're, I was work from home. And so it, you blur that lines of like personal work because you're sitting there anyway. And so that also contributed to it. It was also just such an interesting uh, time to, to be thinking through all those issues. Um, but that's why I like the, the industry. I mean, you know, COVID aside, I mean, I, every day I'm just like floored and astonished by the stuff that these clients come up with. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's stuff out there now they can read all of your vital signs with like your, your phone, like a camera, wow. which is nuts. Like there's stuff out there where people write, you know, traditionally every day would have to puncture their skin and prick themselves to get their diabetes glucose readings. And, and there's some technology coming out where they can do all that with like radio waves, like radio waves. Right. So stuff like that is, uh, it's cool for, to be on the bleeding and cutting edge of those types of developments. And so that's what, um, you know, is appealing to me in, in this work. Well, I love that enthusiasm. And as we start drawing things to close, two final questions and then, then smaller one smaller question at the end. But one is just to brag on the firm a little bit. Why Foley? What's kept you at Foley? What do you wish people knew about Foley? Yeah. So, you know, uh, again, for a self-interested pitch is, you know, our digital health team, I, I think is is best in class. And, you know, so I um, I think that's a big draw to it. You know, just a, another concrete example, I was on a, on a deal the other day, uh, it was about a week or two ago, and uh, we were doing sell side. So we represent the seller and, and I was uh, pulled in to do uh, healthcare regulatory, like diligence. And I think I'd spent like two hours. I'm all ready for this call. I'm ready to like buyers, lawyers are going to ask all these questions. I'm going to have to address them. Um, you know, here's the risk areas. Here's what we did. We get on the call. There's a bunch of other lawyers because there's other subject matter experts. They get to the, the part where they're going to talk about healthcare regulatory and this telehealth company. And they're like, oh, Foley helped you guys set it up, but we're good. Let's go to the next topic. Like we didn't even need to like talk it through. And it, it shows that, you know, we have such a good reputation from from the experience we've built over the years that uh, that that really, I think, is, is impactful to others that outsiders looking in. And we get a lot of respect for that. And, um, and so I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that. That's a, an enormous compliment. And then almost last, second to last question, your advice to, I don't know, a junior lawyer or a law student on navigating a legal career. Yeah, I think, uh, I guess the two biggest things I would have, one is more high level, I guess, and, and, and that's, and one, the other one's more detailed, but the high level one I'd give is, you know, a lot of it is, is perspective. So if someone were to ask, like, when people asked me earlier on, like, Oh, you're going to be a lawyer. You know, your family was in a business. What about business? I thought I was going to be a lawyer for like five years and then move on to some other business venture or something. But, and someone asked me, you know, if you win the Powerball tomorrow, are you going to still be a lawyer, work long hours? You know, maybe not in the same capacity, but you do have to have some some level of passion. And when you do have that, and it doesn't have to be every piece in every minute of the day of your work, but if you get some uh, intellectual interest and curiosity and you focus on that, it's a little bit of a mindset where it doesn't feel like you said, Alexis, like the long hours are a grind or anything like that. And you find something that you were interested in and um, nothing's perfect. And that will drive you or help you, I think, to have a perspective of intellectual curiosity, which will, and, and also having a career versus a job. I think if you look at it as a career and you're always improving yourself, whether you're working at, you know, I was a lateral. So, it, you know, whether we're working for one firm or a different firm, but if you're investing in your own experience and knowledge and your own career, you know, no one, no one company can take that from you. And you, that goes with you wherever you go. And so when you look at it like that, it's not like you're grinding for the man. Instead, you're grinding for yourself. And it's not even a grind, right? You're figuring things out. You're learning every day. And I think that's a perspective and a mindset. And if you embrace that a little bit, I think all these horror stories about, oh, my God, the big law firm lifestyle. I mean, there are 
probably difficult places to work. And those stories, I think, are, are probably real and true. But I think some of it is uh, mitigated by what I just said. Wow, that's some masterclass stuff you just said. And you've said some of my favorite words about passion and intellectual curiosity. It's almost like I gave you a script, TJ, but I did not. Actually, listeners, this is my first time meeting TJ. (laughs) So so just know this was not planned, but I love that. That is wonderful advice. And then last but not least, if um, someone wants to reach out to you with questions or comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Yeah, uh, I'm always happy to to talk. I, I usually have a couple times a month, uh, various law students or other even junior colleagues and associates reach out to me. So uh, you can always shoot me an email. My email's on the firm bio website. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, and those are probably the two best ways to reach me. And I'm always happy to uh, talk shop. TJ, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.